Meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Of these four disciplines, the last may be the most dangerous, but it's also maybe the most accelerating in our understanding and conception of who God is. With study comes great responsibility because it has the power to take us into a deeper understanding of God. But with that comes the danger of a rationality without relationship. Right? You've all heard the dichotomy before. We want relationship, not religion. Well, as G.K. Chesterton once said, he said, To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. Chesterton's point, Chesterton's point is that we should be like the poets who are eager to stretch, to exercise, to uh, discipline ourselves. As we look at the spiritual disciplines, that's our goal in order to expand our understanding of who God is and kind of peer into the heavenlies and gaze at God himself. It's the poets who are about the relationship. If God, the great object of beauty, that if he's the great object of beauty, we simply want to be the subjects who are captivated, who are changed to be like him. The logician often desires to master the object. So as we approach this idea of study, we don't want to think of ourselves as masters, as being those who have already made it and who have already attained. What we want to do is we want to study God for his purposes. We don't want to study God for our own purposes. The logician does that. He thinks that he can master God. It's this man who thinks that he can fit God into his head completely, not realizing that a God much bigger than his small brain will never fit. You can't fit God completely in your head. What you have to do is to get in the mind of God. So our task as Christians is to find this poetic balance between faith and reason, to present ourselves to God as workers, approved and capable of rightly dividing the word of truth to others. This task comes about by all the spiritual disciplines, but especially study is the avenue which we learn to divide or handle the word of God. And we're going to see that this morning mainly in verse 15 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. But we're going to read 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 26. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them, church, as God's word speaking to us. Paul writes Timothy and says... Remember then, uh, or, oh sorry, right off the bat, goodness. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must be or must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everything, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your inspired word where you've breathed it out for us. We pray that even now that you would breathe on us by this word, that we would see it rightly, that having eyes that we would see with them spiritually, having ears that we would hear with them spiritually. Lord, we don't want to have eyes and ears like the Pharisees that um, things go in one ear and out the other. Lord, we want to internalize these things. We want to be taught by you and sit at your feet and be changed by you ultimately. So we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, you probably noticed the evolution of the translation uh, that I read from. Some of you are reading different translations, right? You're going to see different things here. In verse 15, the ESV says, Do your best to present yourself to God. So that's a modern translation. Then you jump back a little bit in time. The New King James says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. But we're all probably most familiar with the King James, which goes much further back and simply says what? Study. Just that one word, study. While all three of these have different words, different phrases, they're all saying the same thing, which is basically to say, put forth your effort to handle the word of God accurately. Handle it rightly. Don't be flippant with it. Take your time and study. So we're going to look this morning at what does it mean to handle or divide the word of truth, mainly looking at verse 15. But we're going to kind of work through this passage and see some of the implications here. But basically what this all boils down to is doing theology. Have you heard that word before? Theology. Big scary word. It simply means the study of God. Seems like a pretty good thing to do, right? The study of God is what theology is. Now, many people react negatively to the word theology, believing that it involves dry, fruitless arguments about small points of doctrine. It doesn't have to. Dr. R.C. Sproul argues in his wonderful book, Everyone's a Theologian, anytime we think about a teaching of the Bible and strive to understand it, we are engaging in theology. So if you thought about it like that before, actually, we're all theologians. If you look at the Bible and you think about it and you're putting your mind to it, what you're doing is engaging in theology. You are a theologian. So it's not about whether or not we will engage in theology. What it's really about is what is our theology. Everyone has a theology. It's whether it's good or bad. The man who says, I don't have a theology, essentially saying uh, that I, I have this book, I have the Bible, and I haven't studied it all, I haven't organized my thoughts about it, and all I need is just this Bible, this book. But we need more than that. It's not that we need more than the Bible. It's that we need to know how to apply the Bible. Because that's what theology is all about. We don't want to have a shallow theology. All through this series, we've been talking about what? A deep faith. A deep understanding of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So that comes through immersing ourselves in God's word. Studying it deeply. So we, on the other hand, we want to be deep Christians. 
We want to be mature Christians, able to say that if we're tested, if someone comes to you and asks you a question, we need to do what it says in the Bible. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we believe in. Be able to give a reason. Can you give a reason? If someone brings a scripture to you, do you have a theology that's able to give an answer to that person? We can't just blindly follow Christian culture. That's what happens most of the time. right? You, I sit up here and people sit in the pew and they just take my word for granted. But you need to be able to search the scriptures for yourselves. Don't take my word for granted. Or don't take my word as the word of God. You need to take it as coming from this. And you need to do your work of study because you are a theologian. You need to study God's word. So the difference in bad theology and good theology boils down to knowing how to handle the word of God. Knowing how to study it. How does all of this work together? This big book that has lots and lots of words in it. How do all those words work together? And how does it come out in your life? That's what doing good theology is all about. So let's get a little bit more deep. So definitions of rightly dividing and handling. Well, let me just first say that the first step to rightly dividing or handling anything, not just the Word of God, is to put your hands on it. Right? If you're going to handle something, you've got to pick this up. You've got to pick your Bible up. You've got to open the pages. You've got to read the words. And you've got to actually get in there to do the work. You can't just listen to it. Right? You've got to actually put in deep study. See how the things work together. A surgeon cannot begin to dissect unless he first picks up his scalpel. Right? He can't just kind of dangle the scalpel, which would be like kind of like the Word of God, and just drop it and expect it to work. He's got to be skilled. He has to know how to apply what he's got. The tools have to be taken in hand and actually apply them. You've got to rightly divide them. You've got to handle the Word of God that God gives to us. So dividing and handling, it implies a familiarized systemization. What do I mean by that? It means that you know, you're familiar with God's Word, and you kind of have a system in your mind. You know that when you come to God's Word, you remember the other Scriptures. You're able to take this Scripture, interact with this Scripture, and what you realize is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Have you heard this principle before? It's very important. It keeps you from having a sloppy theology that allows you to have contradictions. Because a, a contradiction in theology could be having this scripture that says this thing, and this says this thing, and there's a third element that you haven't considered, but you're just believing both things are true, and there's still a bigger view to the picture. right? We talked about this kind of last week, didn't we, where it says, ask God of anything and you'll receive. Well, there's more to, the, more to that scripture, isn't there? You ask and you receive not, James says, because of this. Right? So that's how you build your theology. You have to have a familiarized system where you bring all these things together and you put it to work. You put your hand to divide the word of God. It's not on autopilot. You can't just open up the Bible and expect just this magical power to come over. You have to use your mind. God gave you a mind. That's part of your being. Do you realize that? That we're not just hearts. We're not just souls. That You actually have a mind. You have rationality. You have intellect that is meant to be put to God's use. So use it. What, what better is, use is there than applying that mind to the Word of God? We don't get weird about this kind of thing when it comes to uh, being a doctor, right? Everyone wants their doctor to study, right? You should want your pastor to study too. You should want your church members to study too, the people that you're interacting with. You should want your pharmacist to study because it's important to put the mind to use and put it in the use for God. So good theology is applied theology. When a pharmacist studies medicine, he does that to be able to know how to medicate the body rightly. And when a logician, or a, a theologian, sorry, when a theologian gets the word of God, what he's doing is learning how to, how to dose uh, the, the patient. 
Right? When someone has an issue, they're sick, they're spiritually ill, the, the theologian knows how to take that and assess the situation. He has that familiarized system that says, I think what you need is this scripture. And he's able to apply that rightly. But if you're sloppy, if you just pop verses like popping pills in a crisis, it's about the same thing, isn't it? Right? It's, if someone has a panic attack and you're just saying, well, take this pill, take that pill, whatever, and you just start throwing stuff at them, you can do a lot more damage than you can good. What we need to be is tempered disciplined in our study, knowing precisely what to apply. Like a pharmacist knows that you need this in this time and then this way with this dose, we should be able to take the scriptures in the same way and do just that, right? That's the why, That's the way that we come to God's word with that kind of discipline and study and knowing not just the words themselves, but what they mean and how to apply them. James talks about even the demons knowing scripture, so it's more than just spouting off things. It's not that you can just say the magic words of Scripture and it happens and things are just fixed. You need to know how to apply it rightly. What happened when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness? Who was quoting Scripture to him in that moment? It was Satan. So it takes more than just knowing your Bible, doesn't it? It takes an apply or an application. It, it learns that when Satan comes to you and says, here's this scripture, you're able to say, no, 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 that's not the way it works. I have this system. I have this familiarization with the whole picture of God's word. I have a theology that's able to back up what I'm uh, holding as true and say that is false. So we need to be deep Christians that are immersed in God's word like that, being able to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, this passage talks about the worker being approved. So what does it mean to have an approved theology? What does it mean to have God look at our theology and say, that's what I'm talking about? Or, or God can say, this is the thing that I want. I approve of this. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We want that kind of theology where God can look at us and say that. Well, it boils down to basically having a practical theology, a theology that works. Theologians have said before, I think it was Doug Wilson, said our theology comes out our fingertips. I love thinking about it that way. If your theology isn't being put to work, it's useless. And a useless theology is a bad theology. So, what is approved theology? Well, number one, we need to search the scriptures. Right? We've got to get our heads in this book. Acts 17, 10-12 says this, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. You probably are familiar with this passage. They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So taking this principle, we can see that building a noble theology... This Berean theology looks like receiving the word, number one. So when the word comes to you, you say you receive it with eagerness, just like the Bereans do. You eat it all up. You say, this sounds like God's word. This is God's word. I'm excited about it. Now what? Now you have to do what the Bereans do. You have to examine to see if the, with the other scripture if it jives. Because that's what they did. And they, Paul says, this is the word of God. He's, he's preaching the word of God. And he goes to the Bereans, and the Bereans say, I don't know about that. This sounds different than what I've been taught. So what do they do? They run to their Bibles. They run to the Old Testament and say, does this work with what God's word says? And it did. And that's how the New Testament was birthed. The, the, Paul came forth preaching the word of God and it was received because it fit with the rest of scripture. It was good theology. It was truly the word of God. So we need to be able to do the same thing. When we hear something, we need to examine the scriptures to see if these things were so. Now, how often do we, do, do we need to do this? Every Sunday, 
You, you guys just come in here and I say the word of God and you read it and you say, yep, good. No, it says that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The psalmist says that he meditates on the word of God day and night. You need to be immersed, baptized, swimming in the word of God. You need to run after this. This should be your bread and butter each and every day. You should feed off of this. This is what should fuel you in your life. You should examine these things day and night to see if these things are true. And making a daily practice out of it. And then when you see it, here's the thing where a lot of people get mixed up. The Pharisees have this problem. They were able to see it. They looked right at it. They say, That's, that theology works. Rationally, logically, everything fits. I just don't believe it. You know, we can do that, can't we? We can have a good theology and then practically in our lives we don't live it out because we don't really believe it. This is where theology gets a lot more difficult. You can meet people that have great theology on paper, but you look at their lives and they're a mess. Why? Because they don't believe what they say they confess. Right? So you got to be careful because that's what the that's what the Bereans did. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then it says, many of them therefore believed. So this next step is actually the believing what the theology says. So you look at the Bible and you say, this is true. And then you say, I'm going to live it out. The theology that comes through the fingertips. Because if it's not useful, God doesn't approve of it. Your theology has to be approved through usefulness. So we search the scriptures, number one. Second, this text tells us in verse 16 to avoid irreverent babble. What is it talking about there? Avoid irreverent babble. This flows out from the first point about searching the scriptures. Have you seen groups in the church that get all stirred up about one person having one dream and the entire group tries to just ride this wave out? He says, God told me this. I had this dream. This thing happened. And then conferences are had, books are written, and offering plates are passed around. And this big babble happens out of this one little event, right? You've seen it before. Titus 3, 9 through 11 talks about this kind of thing, this kind of irreverent babble. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. For as a person who, or for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. So I say this to make this point. If someone has some new idea and is telling everyone about it and how they just need to uh, listen to this, they need to get on board, what you need to do in that moment is to ask them to back it up. It might be that God has showed them. They might have had a great experience, but what you need to do is put their feet to the fire and say, how does this line up with God's word? Can you rightly divide? Can you rightly handle this experience that you're talking about, God? Does it fit with Scripture? Now, they might say, well, I can't. Find it in the Bible, but it happened to me, and it was really awesome. Then you need to say, well, is that what is our standard? It was awesome. It was a great experience. Or do we hold our our living and the way we uh, practically live out in our theology, do we hold that to our experiences, or do we hold that to Scripture? Does it meet the standard? And they'll probably say, well, obviously there's fruits, right? I mean, look at all the people we've gathered here. It's spreading like crazy. And I would just say to that, if someone says that, well, Paul says lots of things spread quickly, like gangrene, Right? False teaching can spread quickly. So just having numbers, just having a big gathering of people doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Our standard can't be numbers. Our standard has to be the word of God. And we got to know how to rightly handle and divide that truth. This brings us to our next point. Paul isn't afraid to draw clear lines. The truth is no one wants to be called a heretic. 
I don't want to be called a heretic. You don't want to be called a heretic. But the reality is heretics exist. There's people who are teaching false things. And guess what? Paul isn't afraid to call these people out. And he not only calls them out. He doesn't say these people generally. He says, Hymenaeus, Philetus, those guys, watch out. He draws clear lines. He is not afraid to name names. We've thought for a long time in the Christian world that we should just be charitable towards one another, never name any names, just kind of give general ideas. Paul says, actually, these, these people are the problem. This theology is their problem, and this is why you should stay away from them. They're leading people away from the truth. So we've got to be careful in the way that we think about this. We can't be so shy that we're never able to call someone out and say, no, no, I'm going to come to you, and after I warn you once and then twice, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. And the church should be the same way. We've flipped it, haven't we? We think that the person that is making the division is the one coming to him. No, the person who strays from the truth, that's the person causing division. That's the person causing a split. That's the person causing problems. The problem isn't the person coming to that person. He's trying to help. So we've got to be able to be careful in the way that we think about Scripture because there's an evangelical law that just kind of is out there that you never confront anyone about anything. Never say anything. Just be nice. Be nice all the time. But that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's naming names. He's, he's drawing lines in the sand. He says, this is bad theology. Why is it bad theology? Because we confess that the resurrection is true. We just literally confess that in the Apostles' Creed, by the way. That's why those kind of things are important, that there is a resurrection to come. And he's saying, these guys are saying it's already come. There's a problem. The problem is, is it hasn't. And there's bad theology being taught. So we've got to be careful in the way that we uh, navigate this in, in, our, in our actual practice. So... How do we do this together? right? We've kind of got this general picture. Theology's out there, and it's, it should be practical. But how do we actually do theology with one another? Well, Paul tells us, he gives us a really beautiful analogy of a house. You'll see this. I'm going to kind of walk you through this here in a second. In verse 15, he says this. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. So I want to start there with the workman. And we're going to build up from the workman all the way to having an idea of a house. Well, Earlier in this passage, if you look up earlier in chapter 2, I don't want to read through all of it. He brings up other vocations besides just the worker. He talks about a soldier not getting caught up in civilian pursuits. As if to say, don't get sidetracked. Make sure you're staying focused on the main point. Don't get caught up in the genealogies. All this little stuff. Stay focused and he talks about an athlete. The athlete runs according to the rules. He knows the standard, and he stays within the standard. He's not cheating. He's doing things the way he should. Then he talks about a farmer, and he says this farmer has the first share of the crops, as if to say this farmer is enjoying the fruit that's he's, that he's bearing. Right? It's a joyous experience. And then we get to where we are today, to the workman. So the, he starts with the workman in order to build up this idea of the church. Right? That's what we're constructing. This house is the house of God. And you could even really see it as kind of a temple in many ways. There's this temple language where we're building up this house of God. So we have verse 15, the workman, or we might say the builder or the construction worker. Then verse 19, we have this idea of a foundation. Verse 19 says this. But, so, or, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone whose name, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, iniquity. Why would he say this? Why would he start talking about a foundation? Well, because of verse 18. It says, some have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. So what he's doing here is he's actually giving you a firm, fixed foundation that you can bank on. He's saying, don't get scared. 
Why should you not get scared? Because God's church, his his, uh, his church stands on a firm foundation. And what is that firm foundation? The firm foundation is, is that the Lord knows who are His. In other words, God knows who are His people. And He knows who are His people because He's already paid for their debts. This kind of sounds similar to statements like, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, it's going to happen. The church is going to move forward. There's no question about it. I know what I'm doing, God says. So Paul, what he's doing here is actually rooting his foundation in election, which is a doctrine that you can study on your own time. But if you have any question about whether or not Paul is actually rooting this in election, look, look, look up at verse 10. He says, Therefore I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the foundation of the church is concrete, it's fixed, and it's not as if someone could bring their bad theology with a jackhammer and just ruin the church. So that, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't worry. Don't, don't freak out. Yes, there's going to be people out there teaching bad things, but when you see that, don't lose hope. Don't think that the, God's church is actually going to be demolished by them. You need to be able to realize that you have a firm foundation. The Lord knows who are, who's, are his. He knows who are the good guys and the bad guys. And ultimately, he's chosen the good guys to go to continue to move forward and build the church. And what your job is to be part of those people. Your job is to continue on doing what you should be doing. So that leads us to the next point. The house is already well on its way to being built. Right? We're not still at the foundation. The foundation has already been laid by the apostles and by Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 20-22, he says that we are members, or we might say workers, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, who, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Get that? idea of a temple, this house, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a beautiful way to think about the church. Think about the house of God. This this temple that the Lord is bringing together. We see that he's explicitly talking about this house in verse 20. He says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Have you heard that language before? Honorable use, dishonorable use, various kinds of vessels. This sounds like the language that Paul uses in Romans 9 when Paul is talking about the election of God. The various vessels are you and I. It's not just general ideas. It says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. So we want to be the approved workers, the workers who are honorable vessels, set apart as holy, it says, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So the honorable vessel is the man or woman that cleanses himself of bad or dishonorable theology in order to be set apart as holy and to be approved by God as a worker not ashamed by the master of the house. When God looks at him, he should be feeling confident that the Lord is going to approve his work. And the work isn't just theological ideas, is it? This is good works. This is actually bringing your theology out your fingertips. It's not just having the right ideas, it's living them out. So this all can be summed up by how we live together in this house of God, which we call the church. we gotta, we got to somehow work together, not just in this body, 
but other churches as well. As we look around the world, there's churches all over the place, and we've got to figure out how we are supposed to do this together. God wants us to remember that what we are doing when we engage as workers in this house is that we're not getting all caught up in the small things. We've got to be able to keep moving forward. Just as the soldiers don't get entangled in the small little pursuits, don't get caught up on all the small issues. Be able to move forward in your task. Know the standard. Know that you can't be caught up on all the small things. You can't be caught up on this person's experience. You've got to say, no, I'm an athlete that runs according to the rules. You should be able to have a theology that's productive, it's useful, it's making things, it's bearing fruit like a good farmer. And you're able to enjoy those fruits and talk about them with others. It says this very thing in verse 21. It says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be set apart um, as an honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Useful. Are you useful, church? Is what you believe actually useful to God? Think about that. We all have our ideas in our head, but if we actually step back and think about it, how useful are those things to God? Because if they're not at all, if your theology actually isn't being put to work, then you're not having good theology, and you're not approved by God, and you're not useful, right? So we've got to be careful in the way that we form our theology, not just going on and building this massive, massive idea of theology and never actually doing any of it. It would be much better for you to have one small focus, be one skilled worker in one little part of the house, and have that master to do that well than it would to just have this massive theology to just think that you know everything about everything. Because the reality is, is you don't, and you won't be able to. And that's why Chesterton is, is so right. We can't fit the whole blueprint of the home in our head. No one person can. That's why it's so important to realize that we're all members of this body together. We need piano players. We can't all be piano players. We need different parts to do different thing, things. And what we realize is that when we do this, we're doing theology for God's sake, not for our own sake. So it's not theology for theology's sake. There's no good in that. There's no use in that. We want theology for God's sake. We don't want to be as the Pharisees were, who are all caught up in the minor points. Jesus says they, they tithe dill, mint, and cumin, but then they neglect the weightier things of the law, like love, faithfulness, justice. Is your theology producing such things? Because Jesus says that they should have done those things without neglecting the former. Right? It's not that Jesus says, I want all good works and no theology. He says, no, you need both. You need a theology that makes good works. The Pharisees were the ones that had all the theology and not the works. They were the hypocrites. They were the ones that uh, on the outside they had this big fat theology, but on the inside Jesus was able to say, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You don't get any of it. You say you understand it all, but you're not actually living it out. So what does this mean? How do we work together? Does this mean that we disengage and we don't do theology together? We just internalize it all and we just stay in our homes and study? No. If so, how can one do as verse 24 and 25 says? How can you teach theology if you don't do it with others in the house? Right? Paul tells Timothy, teach this to others. How can you patiently endure evil if it's not with you in the house? Have you thought about that? There's actually going to be parts that are wrong in the house for a time. And it's going to be God is God's the one that's actually going to judge that at the end of the day and say that's wrong and take it out. But you have to patiently endure with those people in the meantime. There's going to be people in the church that teach wrong things. And you're going to have to be patient and endure in that time. And, and then if this is so, if we don't engage other people, how can you correct the opponents with gentleness if you don't even engage them at all? Right? Think about that. He says correct them with diligence or with gentleness. So think about that. 
We're not cold and mean when we do realize someone is wrong in theology. We're gentle. We come to them easily, gently, slowly like Jesus did. He, he comes to people and says, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. He doesn't say, you idiot. <laughs> That's what we want to do, don't we? we? We want to come with our big fat theology and we say, don't you know that Burkhoff's systematic theology says right here that you're wrong? Right? That's what we want to say. We want to sound big and awesome and prestigious. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've got to come gently. You've got to get on these people's level. You've got to come to them and realize where they are. So, of course, we participate and engage in theological study together. But we do it with patience, gentleness, and love. Because that's the only way that that's actually going to make any progress. Right? You can't come to people and hate and expect there to be fruits. You have to come with love, and love produces repentance, doesn't it? Through loving others, they see the love of God, and that turns their hearts towards God. That's how theology in other people's change, uh, theology in other people's minds change through repentance, because that's what it is. It's wrong thinking, and wrong thinking about God isn't right thinking about God. And if it's not right thinking about God, it's sin, right? We can't have wrong ideas of God and God say, "I accept that." God is only going to approve what is right. And only the honorable vessel that sees God as the great master of the house is the one that's going to be approved in the end. So, as we come to a close, this comes back to Chesterton once again. We want to be like the poets who engage in theology to expand our knowledge of God, to build up the house. And our goal is growth, not mastery. That might sound like a surprise to you, right? Like We don't want mastery in theology. If you think that you can master theology, you can master the study of God and know everything, you're misguided. You're, you haven't attained, Paul says. But you need to keep on working at it. The logician thinks that he can master theology. He's like a worker who thinks he can fit the perfect blueprint of God, of the house of God, in his head without the help of others. He thinks, I know it all. I don't need your help. This is why you're wrong. You, you need to come to my conformity and think about things my way. He'll try to use theology for his own devices, not be useful to the master of the house. He thinks he is the master of the house by acting in that way. It's, it's, it's just the fact. If, if someone comes and thinks that he's mastered the word of God and wants to boss people around, what he's effectively saying is you need to get on my level because I own this place. I figured it out and you just need to listen to me. That's pride. That's pride. You've got to watch out for it. I'm not saying you need to watch out for it in others. I'm saying you need to watch out for it in yourself. You need to realize that just because you have a Bible in your hands doesn't mean that you know it all. I've heard people say this. I've read the Bible all the way through. Great. Lots of people have. They haven't mastered it. You have to be humble as you approach the Word of God. So we want to be like the poets who work with what we're given and with others around us. We want to be servants of God. We don't want to think that we're the masters of the house. Verse 24 says that we are servants. It says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Think of yourself like that. Don't think of yourself as the master. As we engage in the study of God, we must remember most of all that we are working for the master of the house and with others. Therefore, we need deep humility. Humility to recognize that God is the one who draws the blueprint, blueprint and humility to recognize and realize that others may notice details about the blueprint, about God's word, that we didn't. Right? And that's not just people around you. That's living and dead people. As we consult old books, there might be things that people have noticed back in history that are right about God that we've missed, that we've gotten sidetracked on. So we need to come to God's word with humility. So church, the charge is this. Study God, but do it in a relational way. A loving relationship between him and yourself 
and between yourself and others. The whole law of study could be summed up in saying this. Love God, love others.